Scorp is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. He's got it. 984, a world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold medal. A perfect score. 10.0 for Dante Cavanici. A perfect score. The first time I've never seen it is off the podium an olympics podcast coming your way today for another interview and we are so excited for today's interview because it has been so long since we have had an athlete from this sport on the show five years since we have talked to a sailor on this show one of our very first guests we ever got on off the podium back in 2017 tom burton gold medalist from rio and we are here now uh, at least at the time of uh, releasing this in the middle of 2022 to finally get on another sailor and it's another olympic gold medal winning sailor 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 that's the name i don't even know how to pronounce the sport sailor will ryan gold medalist from tokyo in the 470 class alongside matthew belcher won the silver medal in the same class back in rio as well and this is a great chat such an entertaining chat here with will learning about his journey into the sport very very young when he got started in this sport and one thing that i love about this chat is how he explains sailing now i want to say that we obviously have uh maybe said a few things about sailing over the years about it not being the most entertaining sport for spectators but the way will describes it this sport should be more entertaining for spectators and we talk about how he can use the enthusiasm in explaining just how much work is going out there on the boat to translate that into making it more entertaining for spectators so that myself colin and jared can stop having to go oh let's use parts of the caribbean music to make this more exciting this sport is exciting we just need to somehow make it exciting for us to watch it. So Will talks a lot about that, talks about the hardships that came from the silver medal from Rio and the disappointment that he had to overcome in order to turn that into the success that came about from Tokyo. And there's a, a lot of other things in here which you're going to get a lot out of. This is a fantastic chat. Will is a great, engaging character and really get a lot out of this interview. So please sit back, relax and listen to our chat with Olympic gold and silver medal winning sailor Will Ryan. <laughs> I'm very excited to be able to welcome our next guest here to Off the Podium because we haven't had somebody from his sport on this show in five years. You've got to go all the way back to ni- uh, 1997, 2017. Jesus, I'm not going back that far. Uh, when we had Tom Burton on the show, one of our very first guests we ever had on Off the Podium. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more today about sailing with somebody who has uh, won five world championships, two Olympic medals in the 470 class and I am so excited to learn a little bit more about his journey in the sport, the sport in general, and to get us pumped and excited for the sport of sailing, because I feel it's been a while that we've actually got excited about the sport here and off the podium. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show, William Ryan. I'm just going to say, Will, welcome back. Well, welcome to Off the Podium. I'm flustered, Will. It's been a while since I've talked to sailors, so uh, clearly I'm just I'm, I'm spe- speaking shit today. So welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Ben. And uh, nice to see that you're at least very enthusiastic about our sport, even if nobody else is. So, um, no, privileged <laughs> to be here. Thanks. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to uh, just completely ignore um, all the pre-production stuff that happened in the lead up to that interview uh, introduction there. So, uh, the, the joys of uh, recording this. But, uh, no, I, I'm pumped because we, um, we have some fun with sailing during the Olympics here and off the podium because uh, it's, it's a sport that... I'm sure, you know, it's not necessarily that everybody's tuning in prime time for the Olympics, are they? Australians, we're watching swimming, we're watching, you know, cycling, and then all of a sudden I think it gets to about day 10 and we start winning medals in sailing and everyone's like, oh, my God, sailing, yes, we're winning medals. So uh, can we change this? Is this what we're here to do today, Will, is to maybe get people to go like, no, day one, we're watching sailing, bugger the swimming, we need to get pumped for this sport instead. Uh, I wish that would be the case, but I think even I'd be more more inclined to watch the other sports on day one of the Olympics. I'm I'm absolute sport addict, and I thoroughly enjoy watching the the guys kind of crack into it in the early days of the games. And for us in sailing, we're quite fortunate that our sport kind of drags over a couple of days because gives us the chance to watch some others get through a few pre-race nerves and, and kind of find our feet in that big arena. And, uh, and it's nice given the, the situation as last time, it meant that we're at the Olympic Games for a lot more days than what some other athletes were. So, um, yeah, brownie points for us. <laughs> Very much so. Exactly. That's a good way of, uh, of looking at it because it's, it's actually really interesting. I, I remember it was at London where the swimmers hadn't done very well. Uh, there was a few other sports where we weren't living up to expectations. And then lo and behold, it was up to the sailors basically to get us a couple of gold medals to really uh, get exciting. So I think right now we just need to take a moment to thank sailing at the Olympics from an Australian perspective because, again, it's a sport that always saves Australia. So uh, no matter what people, are, you know, attention span they have from it, it is the sport that saves Australia at the Olympics. So it's important to always acknowledge that. I'll jump in on that because, uh, yeah, the 2012 Olympics, I, I wasn't at, but um, I rang up a radio station and, and told them that the sailors were going to win some medals and I won a $40 fuel voucher, which I <laughs> wish I'd saved until now because it'd be worth a lot more. But um, <laughs> no, it's a nice place to be for our sport. It's, it's not a sport that has a huge following, but it's something that I think a lot of people actually connect with, particularly in Australia. Like everyone's kind of close to the water and uh, for the older generation, most people can remember where, they were when Australia 2 won the America's Cup some uh, long time before I was born, but um, some years back. And and it's nice, I think, in this yeah this last Olympic kind of quads, the last four, it's been really cool that the sailors are under pressure and in a, a very different venues each time. Um, at least one of us has managed to come through with, with some goods and some silverware. And uh, yeah, it's nice to keep the sport on the map. I'm very, I'm very intrigued about this forty dollar voucher. So, like, what was it? Like a competition of like, guess what sport we're going to win medals in, or something like that? And were you just like, hey, I've got an inside knowledge. This sailing sport's pretty good for us. So keep an eye on it. Randomly, they actually used Swedish words, and you had to say, was it something that was sold at IKEA or not? And um, yeah, I don't know how I ended up in this little competition, but uh, no, it was a <laughs> morning segment, which must have been why they were desperate for callers, and somehow I got through. So um, yeah. <laughs> Big wow. Day. <laughs> you, I mean, very big day. the last, the last thing three... I won before the Olympics, I think. <laughs> well, I was going to say, the last three Olympics, you've had pretty success. Gold medal, silver medal, and a $40 fuel voucher. I mean, what, again, as you said, what's worth more nowadays? I'm going to say the fuel voucher. I think so, yeah. 
That's uh, yeah, honestly, the the silver medal got me a medium sized cappuccino um, <laughs> at one of my favorite coffee shops back home in Australia. And uh, unfortunately, I, I haven't made it back to Australia yet, but I'm really hoping it's going to be a large after all these well, years. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you've answered one of my questions. I always like to ask you get free shit with your medals. And I mean, a silver medal gets you a medium coffee. So, um, hey, that's that works. I was I was honestly pretty happy with that, actually. So. Yeah. <laughs> Some people are happy. Maybe I should with set my no... standards higher for the future, though. <laughs> I think you should, maybe, because I mean, was some of the Tokyo Olympians I saw got cars when they got back. Uh, so I mean, you know, if you haven't been back to Australia, maybe there's a car waiting for you at the airport. Essentially, I think that's my ploy from now. I just I've, the more I drag it on, the, the bigger I'm expecting the prize supposed to be when I get back yeah. to Australia. So um, yeah, I hope, I hope lots of people listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, through the roof, you're going to get it. I mean, I think Ariane Titmus is going to get kicked off those Harvey Norman ads, and they're going to get you. On there instead so you might get a free kitchen top or you know counter or something along those lines so uh wow geez the untapped market of you getting there's just so much stuff waiting for you Juan. get back to australia already come on <laughs> i think that those electronical appliances at least they're more relevant to the sailing market you can't can't do much with a, a kettle or a hairdryer when you're actually at the swimming pool so um, <laughs> I, I think if you've got those leads having on Send them my details, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, look, we're, we're hugely connected on this show now. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to uh, pass that on. But, I mean, I love your your journey in the sport, the, the story that you've told so many times about the fact that you were two years old, essentially, when you got into sailing. So, uh, for the people who haven't seen all the other interviews with you, tell us how you got into sailing as a two-year-old. Two-day-old, yeah, I should say, not even a two-year-old. Two-day-old, um, two thank you, yes. <laughs> Uh, hugely I think it's always the people around you that kind of guide so much in your life. And my grandfather, who's been a huge role model in my life and continues to be, he had a yacht and um, I was born just prior to Christmas and family didn't want to let my birth get in the way of a good party. So they, I think they dragged me along and took me out on Sydney Harbour at only a few days old. And um, my, my family are predominantly Newcastle based. So it'd been a, an effort for them to take the boat down and, a cool way to, to celebrate it because it's funny that that was such a, a I guess a pinpoint mark in, in my life in in the journey that I've taken now but for many years it, it never seemed relevant because my father was a, a rugby union player he had high hopes that there'd be me followed by 14 more boys and we'd have our own family rugby team and go on to great things but um yeah, for those who haven't seen a picture of me, I'm about six foot three and, and don't weigh a whole lot. So <laughs> I wasn't going to make it very far in the rugby despite my best efforts to play for many years. Um, finally, mum let me off the hook and said I could change sports and, and kind of stumbled back into sailing in, in my later years, probably 13 or 14 years old, which is, is late to the sport in many respects. But I think for me, the passion that is linked to the sport is, is, is rooted with those memories of being with my family and, and having a good time and and for me, I think that's what has helped me survive in this sport at, at a high level and the, and the pressures that come with it is that even in those tough days, you kind of remember the, the good moments and, um, yeah, it's always another day tomorrow and it might be better weather and not as cold. <laughs> I, I, I like this sort of notion, though, that, uh, you know, you, you go in that, you know, great Boxing Day tradition of, of Sydney to Hobart, you know, there in Sydney Harbour. I'm just thinking that if you were a Victorian and maybe you got taken to the MCG on a Boxing Day test, we could be talking about a completely different sport than that maybe this was just ingrained as two-day-old, you know, we like, boom, I'm going to get into this sport eventually. Could have been a, Could have been a cricketer basically one day instead if you're in a different state. <laughs> 
No, I'm not very good at cricket, so <laughs> it was lucky I found sailing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that 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 connects that way, which it's it's kind of when you get into sailing and you start to take it up, the different paths I guess you can take in the sport because. Do you sort of look at it as, okay, I want to do a certain type of sailing to become an Olympian? Is there that path of I want to go into, say, the America's Cup or I want to go into, like, Sydney to Hobart? Like, is there certain decisions that you make along the way as a young athlete or has that sort of come to you once you realise what type of sailing you want to go towards? Yeah, I think, like, the whole concept of sailing is a bit of a bizarre one in a way. There's not many pastimes that people do to go from point A back to point a um, <laughs> normally when you do something you want to do it with a purpose and to go somewhere but sailing very much is is around just enjoying those moments in the water and uh, yeah just the experience i think it obviously, obviously comes with champagne and strawberries and, and beanbags like you see in all the commercials uh <laughs> as does olympic sailing but um <laughs> no for for that younger age i think it's just a great way to connect with a broader fan group and or friends group and you learn a skill that's a skill for life. You can kind of do this right until you're in your, in your old age. Um, my grandfather's 90 coming up to 94 now and uh, he's wow. still regularly out in the water. And it's just great to see him do that. And at the same time, it's something that we can enjoy all as a family from, from my personal experience, but whether you end up on a, a family holiday to Croatia for a couple of days or yacht week, like that little, subset skill of sailing kind kind of comes in handy even knowing which way to hold the umbrella in a big rainstorm it's good to know where the wind comes from so probably for the journey into yeah, exactly so the, unless you're mary poppins it doesn't matter <laughs> but uh, the, the journey into the sailing it's kind of just a great way to to enjoy being out in the nature i think but uh as you go along there's so many options and it's a good thing and a bad thing about our sport because there's so many different types of boats it's, it's hard almost to say i oh, like who's the best or, or how do you get the best competition? Because there's, yeah, there's multiple divisions and different places and all the rest of it, but it does make it accessible. And that's what's um, probably so great about it. And there's an ethos that they actually have carried through to the Olympic games. So virtually the, in the Olympic games, there's 10 divisions or 10 different disciplines of, of sailing. Uh, and it could be windsurfing or kite surfing. Um, uh, catamaran, which is, has two hulls. There's a boat that's one person on their own. There's others with two. There's mixed teams. There's, there's different kind of aspects to, to the same subset sport. But for the Olympic journey, for me, it kind of came out of the blue. I um, had ambitions of doing the cruising with the champagne and, and strawberries like we spoke about before. But um, yeah, I, a chance meeting with my now coach, Victor Kovalenko, and just happened to be in the yacht club of uh, uh, in Sydney Harbour and crossed paths with this elderly gentleman and he kind of looked at me and kind of asked me like how much I weighed and which I thought was a bit weird that um yeah <laughs> in a very strong Ukrainian accent <laughs> and I was like okay seems like a nice guy um <laughs> stranger danger didn't those he, new alarms didn't go off this older gentleman yeah. asked me how much I weighed like oh I feel my parents told me not to get involved in these situations <laughs> yeah clearly a poor upbringing I'll speak to mum about that one but um <laughs> no he honestly was just sizing me up to to understand a little bit about my character and I was totally oblivious to it at the time but um asked me a few questions and and what I was up to and, and that was kind of really the beginning of my Olympic campaign I think he decided it before I did and uh he kind of said come back here tomorrow and you're going to sell this 470 thing and, and I knew about the Olympics and kind of followed it knew Australia had a, a hugely rich heritage in the sport but it wasn't a sport that kind of featured for me in 2000 and I think that was really where sailing had 
had developed and, and built its legacy from in Australia. And I'm well aware of that now, but at the time I'm very naive and had no idea who this guy was, who just happens to be uh, the most successful Olympic coach of all time in sailing. Um, they, <laughs> they call him the medal maker. Um, and so, yeah, just a, a chance meeting and, yeah, it was one that I'm, I'll be so hugely grateful for for the rest of my life because not only did it lead me down an opportunity to not have to do my mid-semester exams at university, which was my <laughs> primary goal at the time, but um, yeah, it led me to learn a lot about myself, meet some amazing people and the chance to, to represent Australia, which I think I'll be incredibly proud of for the rest of my life. It's insane. It's uh, you know incredible to think that you have a meeting with someone like that who maybe might need to work on his uh, first introduction skills to young boys. But we can talk about that That's another time. That's definitely but, true. And but girls are no better. You can't ask a girl how much she weighs. It just no. doesn't go down well. I've told him multiple yeah. times. <laughs> just 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 be careful how you introduce yourself. But it, I mean, it's, it's fascinating you bring up Sydney because you would have been what about twelve around Sydney, and you know I was thirteen. I mean, anybody of our age. Anybody in Australia really at that point knows how much it took over the country. And I, I don't know, like, if you were Olympic obsessed. I was that weird kid who was very Olympic obsessed. I, I could name every medalist, you know, probably to this day. If you quiz me on the gold medalist from Sydney, I could probably remember each of them. And obviously that included a couple of sailors. So, you know, they they became very prominent. But it's sort of interesting that if you sort of got a background where you, you maybe do a bit of sailing that, you know, I guess you're not really focusing a lot on those and become such an important part of your life. You join them, you know, 16, 20 years later as, as Olympic medalists. So is that something that now knowing that history, going back, as you're saying, that's kind of where it really started things. Like, have you had an opportunity to meet those guys from Sydney and kind of rub shoulders with them and kind of say, hey, I'm in your club now because look at me, I've got medals as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I think for sure for me at that time in my life, I was looking at the, the Matt Burke and John Eels, thinking that that was who I wanted to be in, in my later or before we coming years. But um, I think like all boys around that time, we all remember the women's hockey team. Um, yep. <laughs> all these fun girls so. running around looking yep. pretty fit. Yep. Uh, all upset because um, Kieran Perkins didn't get to win again. But um, yep. And also Tatiana Gregorieva. The... I was very into pole vaulting in 2000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a sport a lot of people have learned a lot about over the years. Um, I know. Yep. But the, the swimming was, was probably the phenomenal one for, for Australia. And I think that was what probably carried through in my memories from, from that Games. But, yeah, as I've come into my later years, the first Olympic gold medal I have ever actually got to hold was that of Tom Kings, who was a uh, Sydney gold medalist in the 470 sailing division, um, coached by Victor Kovalenko. So at the time, I probably didn't, totally appreciate it but i just thought wow this is really cool like i wonder how this guy got this thing um and yet as the years have gone by i obviously had the chance to to meet and to chat with with a number of these guys and and hear more about it and even the legacy that the sport carries forward so those guys continue to be involved and michael blackburn is now the head technical coach of of our australian sailing team who won a bronze medal at that olympics but really he almost should have won gold as well because the two guys that beat him are, are known as the of two world's best in, uh, in, in the, in the sailing field still today. So, um, yeah, a hugely rich heritage that Australia has, but also just the depth and the, I think that's the type of character that suits this sport. Um, we're obviously pretty stubborn to keep at it for such a long time, but we've got a great environment and a, a support system has been really built up over those years as, as a, a flow on from that Sydney game, which is really cool. And, um, I hope that the the Brisbane games is just going to kind of give that another boost and send it to another level. 
I love this notion of the first gold medal you ever got to touch was uh, from the sport that you eventually went on to yourself win a gold medal. If that's the case, I will be a champion in taekwondo because I touched Lauren Burns' gold medal after Sydney. So um, I think that I'm looking forward to being a taekwondo gold medalist at some point. Better get started at some point maybe in that sport. But it's never you too actually, late. Never watch. too late. <laughs> never. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll be in Brisbane together. We'll, it will be our, our goal to kind of go that way. Did you actually go to any events in Sydney like in 2000? at all yeah no we I've, again my dad's a, a hugely competitive person and i think that's where a lot of my sporting drivers come from and um it was an opportunity that i'm so grateful my parents didn't want us to miss i've got three younger sisters but um they dragged us all off to sydney and uh got to watch i actually watched the game of grass hockey with the girls um, right. but saw some athletics and and watched the marathon which um was phenomenal as well just the atmosphere in that event was really really cool Fantastic. Which is, did you have sort of in seeing that, like, you know, you're sort of not mentioning that the Olympic dream didn't come to a certain point later on, but can you go to an event like an Olympics as, as somebody who's young and kind of very impressionable and get taken up in that? And did anything cross your mind of like, hey, I'd like to do this one day, whether it not be in a different sport if you were very sort of athletic as a kid outside of sailing? No, amazingly, like I, I hear so many people talk about, oh, this Olympic dream that they'd had that they'd been kind of fostered from a young age, but it was never really something that had crossed my mind. And and I was prior to joining, probably one year out from joining my first Olympic campaign, I was quite adamant in, in telling people to say, oh, no, I actually got no interest in the Olympics. So don't really know what those guys are on about. But um, <laughs> I think I just, <laughs> I saw my pathway in our sport of sailing is more in the big boat world and in a team environment, probably from my football experience, a big team of 12, 15 people. And that was the environment I, I always enjoyed was in a, in a group of people. I thought I was a good personality to, to help uh, get the best out of them. And um, it's probably a skill set I've always focused on since and, and tried to kind of carry forwards and, uh, yeah, it, it took quite some time before I really could appreciate what the Olympics was about. But um, it, it just honestly just started as a road trip with some mates and trying to get out of some university exam. <laughs> hey, that's that's what we all try to do in life, right? Basically, when it comes to uh, doing that, when you sort of get that conversation and it's like, hey, you know, how much do you weigh? Come do the four seventy. I mean, had you done four seventy class at, at that point, or was that kind of the first chance that once you sort of, I guess, been headhunted to do it, you get in a boat and that was your real first chance or a taste of the four seventy? No, I honestly had no idea. Um, I probably couldn't have even recognized the boat in the boat park the first day. Uh, I was very much into the skiffs, which is like a, a faster kind of style boat and and into yachts and that was kind of where my group of friends were and um i was at college and obviously there's a social side to, to the sport which we always, always enjoyed as well so that was very much my focus and yeah to come into that environment to see this boat which is really small in all honesty it's 4.7 meters long as the name kind of gives away but it's a, a design that was from the 1950s it's a french design um it's it's not a one design, it's a box rule. And the difference between that and in sailing is basically if, if a design is one design, it almost means you can go to the local Bunnings and buy the pieces, the sailing version of Bunnings, that is to buy the pieces for that boat because it's one for everyone, a one size fits all. And you kind of buy it, you plug it on and, and off you go. Whereas the 470 is a boat that's evolved over many, many years, but it's a, a box rule, which means there's tolerance in each kind of area. And while everything's kind of narrowed down over the years, it's, a 
design, which you can manufacture your own masks, you can manufacture your own sails, uh, the, the hull shapes, the, the centerboard and rudders that you use, all the systems on board. And it's certainly something I had no concept of at the time, but over the years, that's where the appeal of the class has, has drawn me in. And I think it's, that's probably the same for the people before. And yeah, I think that's probably why I managed to stick around at it so long, despite not really fitting in it all that well that very first time I, I saw one. <laughs> so it's very customizable. Is that how you would kind of say it? Is that sort of what, and is that all the way through competition or even at the Olympics, like sort of you can sort of suit it to yourself and like what you and Matt kind of like when it comes to being out there on the water? Yeah, sure. If it was customizable, I'd probably put a little bit more headroom in it for, for me, but um, <laughs> no, that, that's exactly it. And that's a large portion of what the journey is. You, Victor was certainly the mastermind behind a lot of our campaign, but a huge dimension of it was to, to prepare the boat, um, to, to learn the boat and the, your ability to make the boat go fast. Uh, a large portion was about testing equipment to optimize it to your capabilities and your body size. Then you had to get good at racing the boat. And then there was this final level of kind of psychology that layered through all of it that you had to put into place when it got to those big pressure events. So for Matt and I, um, we're probably at, at a heavier end of the scale and a lot of that kind of focus turned towards, okay, how can we make up for, for Will being a fatty on the wire, um, <laughs> send him for a few runs and, and change the shape of the sails. And and it was a big evolution of, over those years. Each venue you go to has its own subtleties as well. So the preparation towards a Rio Olympics was very different to the Japan ones, not just because of COVID. So the focus was always going to be on, on different things. And for us with the boat uh, preparation, it's, yeah, it's a huge component of it. And not only that, because it's so customized, you don't get to always use your, your number one or your favorite piece of equipment at every event you do. You're looking at 10 to 14 events per year. Uh, that's like at a world world stage kind of level plus days of training all over the place and the logistics just prohibit the ability to, to use the same stuff as, as well as the loading on the equipment. Um, it just wouldn't survive the, the duration of hours that we do of training in that four year cycle. Uh, so yeah, certainly plenty to, to go into it. Um, it's a degree in logistics that kind of comes as a, a secondary option with doing Olympic campaign. And you learn a lot about carnets and ships and where they go around the world and <laughs> what can and can't go on an airplane <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> you learn you learn very Fun, well about plenty the, of good stories no doubt yeah the the freight the freight capabilities of certain airlines and things like that i'm sure you pretty much get to know like Qantas versus united or something like that pretty quickly <laughs> exactly but it is possible to turn up to the check-in counter with a 470 wrapped in bubble wrap and they will check really it wow <laughs> like just, just like <laughs> hey what's sure in your bag just paying for it just a boat, basically. It's it's going in the plane. Wow, yeah. Jesus! Did not know that. Hand luggage. Yeah. Hand luggage. <laughs> Put it in the overhead compartment. Uh, so that needs to go underneath your seat. Actually, that won't fit uh, up there. But at least you know if the plane crashes, you've got your own personal lifeboat. You don't need to go on one of those other ones that they've got. So you just like you suckers can go on that one. We've got our Olympic boat to be in. Thank you very much. I've worn my own PFD on or life jacket onto plenty of planes when when it wouldn't fit in my bag. It's always the line you give to the hostess is looking at you in amazement while you're wearing a life jacket. Yeah, maybe the other passengers slightly get scared. Like, does he know something that we don't? Like, going going in there with that? Which, it's, it's fascinating to just hear the technicalities of that because, again, like, 
dumb old podcast host sitting there watching the Olympics going like, all those boats are the bloody same. That one's just got two people on it. That's got one person on it. Everything else is the same. But obviously it's it's not quite that simple. And, I mean, sort of reflecting on that first conversation you've got to where you have with all this success, I mean, would you have done anything differently? I mean, it's a simple question to ask you when you've come away with a couple of Olympic medals and a few world championships. But, I mean, in hindsight, maybe was this a category that you wish you had to try earlier because it's something that you do enjoy so much? Yeah, I think I'm not a person that lives with regret, but um, there's definitely things I would have changed through that Olympic journey. Um, and a, a large portion of the motivation towards Tokyo was was to change some of those things that we didn't get right in the Rio Accord. Uh, and that was a pretty immensely difficult moment or situation to, to move on from, to be honest, because we went into Rio being world number one to absolute favorites to win it. And we just didn't perform as well as we knew we could. And that was even now it's super hard to accept. And uh, I hate to say it, but like, I probably always look on that, that event as being a disappointment. Um, I learned to accept it in those years after it and, and be proud of it. And, and the opportunity I had to represent and to, to come home with it when so many people don't get that little piece of metal. Um, so I was hugely fortunate from that, but that was what was so satisfying uh, eventually from that Tokyo experience is when we went into the very first day of racing, um, for sure you're nervous and, and all the rest of it, but there was no one else I'd rather be sitting next to in the boat or no other coach. And, and even that was the same people as I'd been in the last Olympics. I just, I felt like a totally new and different person. And, and it came away from that first day of racing in, in Japan, just saying like, no matter what happens now, in this event like i'm just i'm proud of what we did today and and that's good enough um obviously i still want to win but um yeah no it was a, an amazing feeling that time around versus totally different to what what i'd had in in that rio rio campaign you really wanted that large coffee you were like fuck that medium coffee was good but i can imagine a large coffee is even better i just want to eat I wanted yeah. coffee as well, but I wanted to eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All my croissant with it. I want I want everything that you get with that. I, I mean, the story with you and sort of Matt in terms of I believe you, you met, you sort of partnered up with him and within within a year you were world champions. Uh, so not a not a bad way to start. But I mean, how do you how did that pairing come about? Because obviously he had won gold with Malcolm in London, so I guess it's pretty all right to be able to go. Hey, by the way, you're about to partner up with this guy. Just won an Olympic gold medal. So I mean, how did that all come about? And kind of was there just something about you two that worked so quickly that you were able to find success straight away? Yeah, I think behind the scenes, the credit has to go to Victor uh, again. He was probably the one that when he saw me in that driveway the first time, he was like, oh, that guy could be good, not today, but for, for in the future. He's kind of one of his little pawns in the big picture that he's moving forward to a couple of places. And and I was lucky enough actually to come in as a training partner to Matt and to Malcolm in that London Olympiad. So I, I got to learn the ropes uh, literally uh, in the 470 with a guy called Sam Kivel. Um, and we kind of were just great friends through that campaign and, and the great opportunity for us to learn from, from the world's best. Uh, and we continued to improve ourselves and not only did that, but we had a great time. Um, and that was a really important part of that journey, I think, to kind of experience it all and, um, learn all the tough lessons in that environment. And, and for me, I was 
fortunate probably to get a bit of a taste of what, what could come in, in 2010, Malcolm couldn't do an event and Matt asked me to jump into fill in for him and, and we went out and actually won this event. And wow. it was the first event that Matt had won in that Olympic cycle. And it wasn't with the guy he planned to do his campaign with. So um, <laughs> I'm sure there were, well, we, we never got told, but maybe there were a few questions asked of what they were thinking. But um, no, I think it, for them, it gave them probably the confidence that they're on the right path because you could see the depth that was working in that class and, and to know that they also had a good training partner. And that's really important in Olympic campaign like sailing where you can use a degree of science to test and validate a lot of the stuff, but the preparation large, it's about having a good trial horse to, to go against. And um, Sam and I did that duty and for sure it had some tough moments with it. It's, it's pretty brutal to go out as a boxing bag every day and kind of almost have the expectation to come second um, and not be allowed to go in normally until you did come second. Um, wow. But <laughs> Matt and Mal were, were hugely supportive to us and, and really helped us get through that journey because there's a lot of financial sacrifice that, that goes into it and they, they helped lessen that burden for us and, and gave us that platform. And, and Sam and I both still sail now and I think um, it, was, it was because of them because a lot of other people that go into Olympic campaigns don't necessarily come out with a passion for the sport still, but uh, no, we were lucky. And, and then to come back to your question around that London campaign, I guess the writing was kind of on the wall that Malcolm would, would probably retire, but it wasn't a certainty. Um, but for me, I knew I just wanted to, to be involved until the very end because it was a great opportunity with, with the top coach and a top team for me to learn more about myself and, and to be in Europe and enjoy that lifestyle as well, uh, which is a privilege. And for me to jump in to boat with Matt, I think, yeah, three months after the Olympics, uh, just and to get our first event win, it was a small domestic event in Australia, but it was just kind of a, a confirmation that the investment I'd made over the years was on the right pathway and was only going to go from there. And to, to jump in that situation was a dream come true, but it also did come with a huge amount of pressure. And I think I carried that pressure on my shoulders through that whole four-year campaign. I um, kind of always joked that I had to, I had big shoes to fill, but I had to kind of, a bigger feet, but I had to kind of do it my own way. And I think I did a good job to go about and, and do that. But um, I think the pressure was really just me on myself, just saying, well, I know these guys are really good and, and they won before. So um, I'm expecting as much of myself to, to try and match it, if not better. It. So, yeah, it took me a little bit longer than those guys, but I'm glad I got there in the end. <laughs> well, it's kind of like that sort of weird um, continuity that seems to come with the 470 class because you have Malcolm winning gold in Beijing with Nathan, then Malcolm joins Matt, they win gold in London, and then ultimately you do then go on to win gold with Matt in Tokyo. So does that mean then that your new partner come – Paris, it's just a continuity. They're just whoever's in one half of the boat will eventually join someone else, and you kind of pass on the baton, basically. So it's just going to be this long-running Australian tradition of, well, I've got the gold, now you get the gold, and you pass it on to your next partner. <laughs> well, Matt's wife's actually a really good 470 sailor, so I was like, oh, maybe I'm supposed to sail with her. I don't, I don't really know what the, the logical progression is, but um, yeah, I, again, that's a full credit to the to the team and to to Victor. I think. Since that Sydney Games, or even just prior, they they really did a great job to kind of build what the future is going to be, and there's stepping stones there. And it's really unfortunate, probably for for Matt and myself, that our Olympic class has actually now been changed. Uh, mm. It's no longer going to exist as the men's two person dinghy. It's going to be a mixed class, which kind of gives one of us the opportunity to maybe consider pursuing. But um, yeah, it's a question like we're still both very keen but we haven't quite found the right pathway 
to go forwards and it'd be sad to do it without the other one, that's for sure. Which, just on that topic, because there was obviously something I was going to raise, but I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because it's we've had a lot of discussions around how the sports works. And obviously, there's only a certain amount of medals you can give out. So, you know, and they obviously want to do a lot more sort of gender inclusive to make it sort of very much 50-50. But it, it seems odd that we've lived in this world where you've had both men's and women's and now it's kind of like, oh, bugger it, let's just combine them instead. Like, And also, is, is sailing really a sport where you need to have a men's and a women's? Like, it seems like a sport where you can easily have mixed competition without it really affecting the overall result. Yeah, I actually I probably agree with that last one, just saying like it's a sport where there are some positions on, on various designs of boats which are more physical and you might think that a guy might do a better job than a girl, but I think time and time again, that's been proven wrong in the sport. And I think it's maybe not entirely the right direction that it's probably a politically enforced kind of view that the sport's gone the direction it has to equalize the medal count. Um, I think it's fantastic that they encourage more diversity and um, equality and, and new pathways into the sport. But I don't think the balance of Olympic uh, divisions really represents what the common day sailor is, is these days. And also not, not necessarily the body uh, shape either, which yeah, I think everyone's always going to have their little gripe about it based on how tall or how skinny they are. Um, and the 470 for me was a great class because it challenged me physically to, to sail up well and mentally to help choose the right equipment and the racing was, was certainly what I enjoyed. But uh, it, it's not a, not a kind boat on, on the body. And for me, I, as I touched on before, like I was dieting for the best part of 12 years in, in that particular boat and I would have been much happier a couple of kilograms heavier if the boat design had allowed. And I think that's probably a bit of a, a missed opportunity that hopefully they can uh, rectify over the coming years. But um, no, it's at the same time, it's, I think they're doing their best to find boats that are accessible for people around the world um, in all different places. And, and I, I definitely value that part of the Olympic atmosphere, which is, is great. Um, but yeah, I think we'll see how this next Olympics goes, and and I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few changes for the one beyond. Because you're going to be in, in Marseille as well, isn't it? It's not actually in in Paris, so I mean, you're in France, but you're just kind of in a different part of the country. Correct. The coffee's not better though; it's worse. <laughs> uh, but it is very, it is a very pretty spot in Marseille. So um, no, fantastic that uh, it's in in Europe. I think it's going to be a, a phenomenal Olympics, no doubt, and and hopefully again it can be that kind of celebration at the end of some tough times uh, around the world as, as they did such a good job of in Japan. Uh, and then beyond that, it's LA and, and Brisbane. So it's, yeah. it's nice to know that, that pathway well in advance. And um, yeah, I think there's some fantastic venues. And it's also the thing that I think we keep forgetting because we've been very lucky as Olympic fans to have a summer and a winter Olympics within the vicinity of, you know, six to eight months. We're just coming off the back of the winters is that, now we're realistically only two years away, aren't we, from Paris? Like, I mean, it's kind of that weird thing where it's like, well, we just had Tokyo. We should be three, four years away still. But no, it's two years away, which I think we're forgetting, which, I mean, does that, again, we're not to sort of jump to the end of the interview in terms of questions, but where you're thinking and thought process right now of, of going towards an, another Olympics, does it make it harder given that it's so quickly or does it make it easier because you know where you want to be in two years? Yeah, no, you're totally correct. It's, it's coming up quick. And I think it's a, it's a tough one because as I touched on before, like for, for my first, my division in the past, uh, if Matt and I had the chance to go again, we'd probably be like, well, well, we'd have a bit of 
time off here and, and do some other things in our life besides just stay with each other and uh yeah come back and i'll see you in 2023 we'll have another crack kind of thing but um no for us with that shorter time frame it really puts the pressure on to to learn a new division and to try to upskill yourself towards the different aspects of the, of the other class and and also to find the partnership that's probably one of the key parts that that you touched on before that australia's had that continuity of people through the years and it's the partnership the the style of communication the relationship with the coach knowing what you need and and when you need to do it and how to do it they're they're all the kind of the key components to getting a good result and and having that chance to keep testing yourself repetitively so that you know that when that big one week of your life comes that you can put down that performance that you want to do so for myself it's pretty tough to know that it's the days are ticking past um because I know the work that's involved to, to get to the top. But at the same time, I'm probably getting more excited by the prospect of, of a nice challenge and, and trying to work hard towards that, that goal. We're going, I want to find out more. I'll always love learning about individual Olympic experiences that shortly. But I'd love to learn just briefly a little bit more when it comes to the physical side, the training, things like that when it comes to the 470. You know, because again... I'm sitting here watching sailing going, you're having a lovely sunny afternoon on a boat. Like what do you need to go to a gym for? But it's obviously a very physical sport. You you need to be in the gym to get to that level. You're talking about things like diet and weight and everything along those lines. So what sort of things when you were and, and Matt are hitting the gym are you, are you focusing on and kind of how often are you in the gym versus out on the water to be ready for the physicalities of the boat? I was going to have a little dig at Matt and tell him, say that I never saw him in the gym, but uh, <laughs> I did see him once or twice. <laughs> once or twice. That, that, that counts. Yeah. Once or twice. Yeah. There was a coffee machine there. Um, <laughs> no, I think <laughs> I'm not sure if, how many people cross paths, but our sailing actually became a bit of a TikTok meme at one stage because of this, this movement that we do on the boat, which is like a fanning of the sail. Uh, anyone familiar with windsurfing would see it too. You kind of, you move the, the trailing edge of the sail backwards and forwards in, in, a, in a pumping motion and it kind of helps propel the boat forwards. And the rules of our particular boat said that above a certain wind range, we're allowed to use kinetics of your body to, to create these movements. And the style of that sailing evolved dramatically over the last six to eight years and became increasingly uh, physical. And yeah, and particularly in, in Tokyo, that kind of added another uh, element to it because the air density is, is quite low there being a hot air venue so that wind limit would be reached earlier in, in theory um, relative to the wind density so suddenly it doesn't feel that windy but you're allowed to do this movement so um, it's even more important that you do do it it's brutally hot and uh, hugely uh, humid and <laughs> the water's like a bath and um, yeah we, we kind of push yourself to like a the high 180s, 190s kind of heart rate zones in those races wow. to get yourself through a one-hour race. And and that's both upwind and downwind so around the racetrack. So, um, yeah, a huge element of um, stamina and endurance that kind of had to be built on top of that strength component, which we kind of tried to refine over the years. And, yeah, I touched on before about the, the kind of the fighting weight you have in, in those boats. For, for the 470, it's usually around 70 kilograms was probably the target weight for a crew which is my position and the skipper will be in the 60 to 64 kilogram kind of range so the pumping element kind of allowed me to be a touch heavier but um yeah for me i think my resting sitting weight would be higher up around 80 so it's, it's always a constant challenge and and for matt likewise he kind of knew how hard i was pushing to lose that weight and, and he knew that any 
extra weight that he could lose could give me the extra weight that I could gain to have more power to, to make the boat faster. And you know, it was combined effort. Um, I'd like to say that I, I lost more weight than he did because it'll be, <laughs> it'll be, it'll be sore about that. But, um, no, the, the sailing used to be a, a game of who was kind of a big guy and, and the shape of speed was round. So the guys that had lots of beers and had a big belly, they were usually <laughs> the ones with the most riding moment on the side of the boat and they did well in the races. But, um, <laughs> no, the, the sports kind of, if it's not near pro, it's getting closer to pro and yeah, people are putting in the hard yards. And I think actually that's probably what I've seen most in the women's divisions in these last years, that, that step up that a number of those athletes have taken to, to push themselves and to get that advantage is, is really impressive to watch. It's, it's crazy to think that like if Matt has an extra cheeseburger one day that it's going to punish you and you need to then go on the treadmill for an extra hour. So I was like, mate, what the fuck did you just eat that extra cheeseburger for? Screw you. I'm going to have to work harder tomorrow. Like I can't think of another sport where it's so almost reliant on each other's like diets and everything. And it kind of literally balances each other out. That's incredible. Whenever we went to dinner, the coach would always volunteer himself to share a meal with myself which I'm, I'm still upset about now because I don't know why he never just shared with Matt. <laughs> wow, wow. And, I mean, you mentioned the positions there. So what defines your positions and, and how do you work out who does what on the boat? Yeah, so to give a bit more background to, to our sport of sailing, I guess for me I'm known as a crew and I'm, I am actually stand on the side of our boat on a trapeze and i guess i provide most of the power and the riding moment to the boat as well as a lot of like tactical overview to to give good feedback and communication back to matt and matt's essentially the driver of the boat he's got a tiller in his hand to steer the boat around and a lot of little ropes and i guess i kind of refer to him as the jockey of the boat he's kind of riding in the boat um with, with a lot of the small control fine-tuned controls in his hands and fingertips and the boat's quite a sensitive both in our one that we can change all these equipment as we spoke about before and and he was certainly the master at that and and between the two of us you try to project firstly where you think the wind's going to shift to um you obviously can't see the wind so it's mostly guesswork don't tell anybody then <laughs> you want to kind of optimize that wind routing a bit like snakes and ladders and try to find all the the ladders to get yourself around the course in the shortest period of time then on top of that, you have all the other competitors in, in the in the race. And at the Olympics, it's 23 boats. Um, but some of the world championships, you go through 130 competitors that you kind of have to face up against through, through that progression towards the finals. So, um, wow. Yeah, it's different tactics and different environments. And you kind of sometimes know who your, your closest competitor would be and you're keeping an eye on them from early from the beginning. But the series at the Olympics is, is 10 races. Uh, you're allowed to discard one bad race from that score. And from the top 10 that are at the end of that bit, they go into a meta race. And that's a, a double points, uh, non-discardable final final event, that one. It's a shorter course race. So most of the standard races around an hour and, and they target this final meta race around the 20 to 25 minutes to make it more intense uh, and essentially better for viewing. But on top of that, it just leaves the final event kind of a bit more open-ended of who might win uh, and puts a lot of pressure on that, that final day, which is always a bit of fun. Which, I mean, for you guys in Tokyo, it didn't really matter. You just had to finish right, but you went out and kicked ass anyway. So it was like, you know, like you, just, you ensured that you got it. But the thing that I love hearing all of that being explained because I sit here going, wow, this sport sounds amazing. But as you just said, the last race you did, like, let's be honest, when you're watching this, it's not a great sport for spectators. So, like, I, I want all of this stuff that you're, you're saying to, like, 
somehow come out so we can watch it because that sounds like an epic sport yet it's not so like how do we make what you're saying coming to us watching <laughs> as a spectator so we can be like holy fuck this is the best sport in the world yeah no i think you're spot on like it's got all the elements where we're literally fighting an invisible fight because you're looking for this wind which you can't see there's there's potholes and waves all over the course and it's constantly changing you don't necessarily know like how far your race will be they kind of can decide it in the moments or they can change the length of the course like mid-race so you could be kind of doing they a sprint can change or could be a bit of a marathon so mid-race yeah so you you're always guessing and um it's not wow. quite orienteering but sometimes in some big waves it's it's just a struggle to find where you're supposed to be going so I want them to do that in like, you know, same bolt halfway through the 100 metres. No, mate, you've got to take a zigzag to your left and it's now 102 metres. Like, come on, like, what other sports do that? <laughs> exactly. And and then on top of, like, it's another layer of the tactics to go with with the other racing in that race itself, the overall strategy of a, a 10 race series and the wind's kind of different in each day. So you might have strengths or weaknesses that, or the opponents might have strengths and weaknesses that you need to kind of capitalise on in, in different days. Uh, and then, yeah, on, on top of that, you kind of step into this meta race and arena at the end to kind of have another world and throw the dice and hope it goes your way. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm saying this right now. All right. I'm sorry, Emma McKee and Ariane Titmus. You know, you're all great athletes and <laughs> fantastic, but you literally know how long you're swimming, what you're doing and how long it's going to take you. All right. I, come bar- Paris, change it up. Like, just change it up. Make them swim extra more. Halfway through, no, you can't swing backstroke, Kaylee. You've got to start swinging breaststroke to really confuse the fuck out of it. Like, I mean, that's, like, kind of what you're saying right there. Like, it's just I, I think it is think because that. then you've you got to try and prove you're better than your competitors. And that's ultimately yeah. what it comes down to. For us, that, that biggest challenge of, of that COVID period was that we had no one to compare where we're against. There's no stopwatch to, to see how quick we're going against someone else or or top speed it's um it's more about you've got to get there and, and be the best on that day against people you're against so uh it's yeah it's a, a tough sport to to put all your eggs in the one basket to, to follow towards but um yeah, yeah for sure we i mean all we did during tokyo when we did our commentary of sailing to make it more exciting we added parts of the caribbean music to it and we thought that worked out okay but i mean god that's my favorite we... when you guys do that oh it <laughs> It was, it was, it made it to a point where we thought, well, this is going to get the kids involved. But seriously, the kids need to listen to this interview and that will get them involved enough as it is, I think. Like this. We, we needed you on that commentary. We needed you live commentating what you guys were doing out there. And there's normally free lollies at the Sailor Clubs as well. So no, the well, there you go. Free lollies. <laughs> Medium coffees and free lollies. The, the Will Ryan autobiography. I like that. It's, it's interesting. When, it, when You mentioned earlier in the interview about the, the psychological aspect. I always love learning about the psychological aspect of different sports. But what is done in a sailor's mind? Like what are you and, and Matt working on when it comes to that mental aspect of the sport? Yes. So Victor, again, I've got to give him the credit because he was probably the one that raised my awareness to, to it even existing really within the sport of sailing. I thought it was just a bit of go out there and have a bit of a, a go at it and see what happens. And, and that's the end of it at the end of the day. But he probably developed something that's always been in my lifestyle, but really highlighted and said, Matt and I were, we were just competitors on and off the water. And that's kind of what drives you to be the best and to, to put your whole life on hand on hold. He, he used to say to us, so how many engineers are there in the world? Cause this is what I wanted to study engineering. And I'd give him some kind of rhetorical answer and he'd say, okay, there's only one gold medal and glory lives forever. So I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> Deep. I guess that means I shouldn't go to uni tomorrow. You want me to come training? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
like he had a quote that was follow trust yourself and follow your dreams and it's something that I'd never probably super well related to through my journey um I was probably more closer to the samurai like do or do not there is no try um I was all in or nothing and, and kind of Top Gun was my favorite movie so I very much resound with, with that that uh you're all into into something um but yeah, we're going to a sailing event because of that, that nature of the 10, 10 races, not being able to control the conditions, not being able to influence the onwater umpires who may or may not know the intricacies of your division of boat as well as they know others. So there's always a bit of ambiguity factor in there. There's the tactics of different individuals on a day that can, one boat could try to take you out versus the rest of the fleet. And all of those kind of like roll into this big, big one big package that you need to always focus for me, focus on myself and focus on my own performance first. And I wouldn't normally come to an end of a racing day and be checking the results. I would be able to reflect on it and know did I perform well or didn't, did I not perform well on this particular day? And, and I could know where the results would be based on my own perception of, of how I'd, I'd done. And I think that's something that I tried to carry through no matter the level of the competition, if it was a small one or a big one is keep those processes the same. Um, ultimately, trust yourself like Victor had always said finally listen to him at the end um <laughs> and to to know that when you're in a in a position where you know you're not deserved of that you know that you can be better than this that you just you have to dig in and and, and use that confidence inside yourself to produce the speed in the boat to to make the good decision under pressure and um Matt was coached by Victor for over 22 years I think so there's always a lot of his victorisms within Matt and I've been coached by Sav with the two of them and coached by Victor for close on 10 years. And I think the synergy that we kind of drew on together, but not only that, we expanded to all of the, the relationships with all the people around us who support us, the sail makers, the boat builders, the triple SM support team uh, on the ground there in the games and, and even the family and friends to kind of use the energy and, and all the things that people taught you along the way to combine that into one and, I know it's a long-winded answer to a psychology question, but um, I think ultimately <laughs> that's what it came down to. And there's plenty of tough moments along the way. It's a, you're no shortage of uh, motivation. Um, and sometimes it's anger that fires you up in some moments. Sometimes it's something else. But, um, yeah, you've got to put it into one and know how to channel your energy as best as you can in those those tough moments. I like the word victorisms. That's that's something he can maybe uh, <laughs> release a book on. Does it also come down to... Um, I guess, chemistry between you and, and Matt, like, you know, do you hang out afterwards after in between events that kind of work in that chemistry? Cause I can imagine you need some level of chemistry and you don't want to fucking hate each other in the middle of a sailing. with like, shut up, Matt, get in the water. Like you, you need to work together well on that boat in order to be successful. So do you just go out and grab a drink and grab a medium coffee or something like that to kind of work on that friendship, I guess, outside of the boat? Yeah, I think we all know how hard it is to just in normal day relationships with boyfriends or girlfriends or dealing with your parents. So to kind of be thrown into a, a really small boat um, by some old Ukrainian guy who met in the driveway. Um, <laughs> it so it was, it's kind of crazy. That, like that. <laughs> Get in the boat. <laughs> it didn't seem, <laughs> it probably didn't seem destined to work. But um, uh, yeah, so for Matt and I, we're actually probably quite similar in a lot of our ways. We similar interest in, in business and in our studies and kind of both love different sports and um, endurance more and more endurance style athletes rather than strength style athletes. And a lot of 
features like this, but what we probably did really well through our early years of, of that campaign was to separate the business relationship part of, of our campaign versus the friendship. And that comes with some sacrifices. We, we consciously chose to, to stay together as little as possible between my coach, um, Matt and myself. And you try to have that little bit of separation, but I think ultimately that was what gave us a really good foundation that we could then critically and now analyze everything without necessarily going into the emotions that might have come with it. Otherwise of being your friend and having to work out how to delicately say something to, to someone. Um, and that's something that I've experienced in other settings through my life. So it's, it's something that's really, I, I'm very appreciative of now, but we handled that well. And that helped us get through a lot of the, the early years um, of that campaign, but probably what COVID did for us at the very end was actually to invert that and put us <laughs> so full on together um, due to the natures of what COVID did for everybody that we were kind of forced to take the relationship to another level. And I think Matt and I are the better friends going into the Olympics than we'd ever been. Um, we still had that professional relationship underneath that. And uh, without being mean to the coach, I think Matt and I were a better team together then than what we'd been as part of that that triangular kind of formation that happened when you have extra people in it. So, so Matt and I were more in sync. We had the ability to communicate better than what we'd ever done before. And we'd probably been pushed into that by the coach. It's probably another one of his crazy ideas that kind of came to fruition at the right time. But um, no, we were really fortunate in the end that, uh, yeah, I think we'll be hopefully be friends for a little while longer. Probably we won't sell it together anymore. So um, that, that probably helps. <laughs> probably does a little bit. Not bad to be friends with Australia's most successful Olympic sailor of all time as well. So, you know. And you, you yeah, I know. He can always hold that one over me, can't he? So. Well, you, you've got time, you know. Like if he doesn't, you know, go on, you could win. You, you just need one more gold and you'll join him and then go go on to uh, LA and you can beat his record. So just saying it's well, still available. I pretty much beat him over the line in every race, I reckon. So really... I yep. think the media's got it wrong. After exactly. Them. They did. Yeah, exactly. Uh, stupid media. What can we say about that? I I always love to, again, Olympic experiences outside of the competition side of things. So you sort of said about how, you know, the Olympics wasn't necessarily something you grew up as a kid, like this is what I wanted to do. But when you went, particularly say Rio, your first Olympics, you know, do you soak up things like getting your uniform for the first time, if you do any of the ceremonies, you know, um, being in the village, things like that, or does it, take a second Olympics for you to maybe go, okay, well, I'm going to take this on board a little bit more this time around because it maybe was something that I didn't, you know, soak up as much the first time around. Uh, it's an excellent question. Honestly, I haven't thought about it enough to, to really think it. I'm not old enough yet. It'll be when I'm in my armchair telling grandkids about how, <laughs> how I was awesome back in the day, hopefully. I don't know. But um, I think the first one, I was just in, in a bit of awe. And like I said before, like I had a lot of pressure on myself that it wasn't over until that Olympic medal had been won um, or gold medal had been won. So for, for the Rio campaign, I probably didn't indulge myself as much as I should have in hindsight. And that was something that I regretted um, quite a lot, like to not go to the opening ceremony because of the potential distraction and um, to, to kind of miss out on a lot of those experiences kind of coming into, into it. I really uh, wanted to do another Olympics to have that chance. And <laughs> as it panned out, Tokyo wasn't to be that Olympics because we missed out on pretty much everything. Um, so that one definitely a lot, a lot of it got swept under the rug. We were, Fortunate enough, Matt, myself, and another sailor, Matt, were the first Australian uh, athletes to be 
announced to the Australian Olympic team for Tokyo, which was in September 2019. Wow. And I just happened to be away overseas. So I, I missed <laughs> that as well. So um, <laughs> And no no uh, roadshow after party back in Australia either. So, um, you haven't been yeah, back to Australia. So, I mean, you don't know all these things that are <laughs> yeah. waiting for you, Will. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That big contract deal and that large cappuccino. So, um, I look forward to it when I get back there. But, um, no, I think I was really lucky actually with the Tokyo experience that Matt got and uh, asked to be the flag bearer for the Olympics, the closing ceremony. And he was kind enough to put his foot down and asked, could I come with him? And that was amazing. And I think kind of sealed that end of that Olympic campaign really nicely for the two of us together. That's we did finally get to go to do some of those experiences. We saw the, the boomers win their, their bronze medal and, and have a beer with Patty Mills and, and all the team after wow. that race and, uh, and, and be part of the, the closing ceremony when a lot of people didn't get that opportunity. So I'm um, yeah, hugely grateful for that. And I'm a, a absolute, Olympic sports fanatic now, and um, I'm sure that that won't ever change. But yeah, a large portion of me really, really hopes that I might get the chance to go to another Olympic Games again. Pretty special to be able to have a beer with Paddy Mills. Uh, you know, winning an Olympic gold medal and doing that—that's kind of a, a, an okay experience to, uh, to to have that going on. Not bad at all. Yeah. <laughs> Which I find it so fascinating to think. Like, obviously, you get named to the team that early. I mean realistically not that early because in a normal time you'd be what like eight months out from an olympics it turns out to basically be what like 20 months where we've had so many of our our winter athletes on who often don't get named until like two weeks before the olympics so like i mean it's kind of it's that huge discrepancy on certain sports particularly on the summer versus the winter side of things where you're going well i know i'm going to the olympics there better be an olympics versus a shit a week to go am i going to be on the team or not Yeah, I think it's another subset of our sport. It's very much an experienced sport, not necessarily a form sport. There's an element of form, but some teams like what we had experienced in Rio, they can kind of come out and perform a fantastic week of racing. Um, Maybe not quite what they've been doing before, but that particular conditions, that style of risk factors that go into the event, maybe they're underdog without the pressure on their shoulders and they're hyped up by the Olympics the right amount and, they can go out and really produce that amazing performance. And you so often see that in other sports where someone runs the sub 10 second PB of their life in the finals. And the same thing happens in sailing. So I think for us, it's a bit of a different game that we need the time to learn the weather patterns of a venue to get our equipment and logistics. It's not about just grabbing your speedos and, or set of goggles that the, they probably already sent to the venue for you actually if you're in the swim team but um <laughs> for us it's about packing up these containers like i think the team has something like 11 40 foot shipping containers full of stuff uh that we utilized between i think the uh, 11 athletes um in That's in insane. tokyo so there's a big support team behind the scenes that go with it and it's a, a full traveling roadshow so um you do need that time to to get yourself your bags packed before you go there yeah, no, I can definitely imagine. You touched a little bit on, on Rio, obviously, disappointing to not get the gold, you get the silver. Was there any part of you, even though you were obviously disappointed not to win the gold, was there any part of you that was just like, I've got an Olympic medal? I mean, this this still means something, or was it so much like, no, nah, not gold, don't give a shit, bring on Tokyo? Uh, in the moment, honestly, when I came back to the beach, I was like, destroyed, I think. Um, it'd been a really tough games, uh, like just a long journey with a lot of pressure kind of leading into it. But physically 
I'd push myself beyond the breaking limit in hindsight of how low I could drop my body weight for that event. Uh, three weeks prior, we, we'd expected to be a lighter event. And three weeks prior, we'd be a rocket ship in these light winds. I was the first one to piece, even out onto piece before a lot of the girls who have a, a pretty much the same boat as us. So um, I was definitely light. Uh, and then the, the games turned into this absolute marathon, a huge storm front came through we had a number of issues with equipment and all the lay days got used up as racing days uh, through the event and that was, so four extra days we were out there long days in the water in the sun and uh, by the end of that that week not only was i just physically and, and mentally done but my dad was standing on the beach and and i walked up to him after the race and he kind of knew obviously um that i'd wanted gold more than anything and I think I probably felt disappointment that I couldn't come to him with a gold medal. And uh, that was probably like the hardest moment of that, that games. And, and I honestly don't remember much of standing on the dais and, and all that after aftermath of that Olympics. It wasn't probably till I'd had a couple of burgers and got back to Australia and even something that I started to, to click back into gear. So um, must've been that medium coffee, um, <laughs> but, for, but for the, the, I guess the later portion of that one, once I did, that welcome home tour in Australia and, and kind of couldn't enjoy the success of the other athletes around me and have that chance to talk to them and hear about their stories and the troubles that they'd gone through and, and their experience. I think that made me re- relate and understand how fortunate I was to have this paperweight um, and yeah, gave it back to mum and um, I kind of know it's there if I ever wanted to go and look at it. It's not something that I pull out the drawer to, to channel for, motivation i kind of i've got that deep inside me but um no I, I know one day i'll definitely be even more proud probably than what i am today which with the motivation at least i can imagine that come tokyo knowing the disappointment that you had in rio does that spur you guys on just slightly but so when i mentioned before about how you came into that last race you just had to finish it and you won the goal but you still go out there and win the damn thing like is it just things like the internal disappointment that probably still stuck with you since Rio that you were like, no, we are making sure we are getting this gold and we are doing it in style. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Um, I think I had more pressure on myself on that race than, than I did in any other race in that series. And yeah, as you touched on, we, we basically got an unassailable points gap going to metal race. We, we literally just had to cross the starting line um, and ideally finish to secure our, our gold medal. But Matt and I kind of both knew that this was the last day that we're going to get to to sail this boat together, Um, the last day of of that Olympic journey for us. And we kind of knew that we'd put all this effort into sailing this way that we thought we'd, our style of way. And um, we're like, this is the day that we've got to put it all together. And so we took a very low risk starting option, which is to start on the opposite tack to everybody behind everyone a couple of lengths behind the starting line um so we got through that process safely and got over the starting line uh without any fouls or penalties and anything like that and and from that moment it's just like okay let's enjoy this and uh yeah as i touched on before we have this pumping rule and fortunately it just, it just been popped up just minutes before the start line and no shortage of motivation from me and suddenly i wasn't feeling tired or anything like that anymore and, and off we went and um it was awesome we just managed to go behind the fleet and and literally sail through the fleet and and pop around the top one in second and um some great footage that the tv cameras managed to do to capture our downwind style which is super dynamic to push these 50 or 60 year old design boats downwind at the top end of their capabilities and 
um, managed to come around and, and kind of have this little victory tour for the last lap. And it's just awesome. And it's something I for sure won't ever forget. Can you even put it into words what it's like to to realize that you're an Olympic champion? I mean, you, as I said at the top of the interview, five world championships, which I'm sure are pretty darn special, but I mean, an Olympic gold medal, uh, something I can imagine that never gets topped. Yeah, they they often say that you trade all your world championship wins in for for that Olympic medal, and um, yeah, honestly, I I probably agree with that because I don't remember many of the world championship wins now that I think about it. Uh, maybe the parties after them were too big. I can't remember. But um, <laughs> all the large coffees uh, you get the, for world championships. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can put into words like other than to say happy. Um, it wasn't a, a sense of relief because I think we knew we'd done the hard work. We we knew we deserved to to do well. Um, whether it was to win or not win, I think just all the challenges through COVID just made us so appreciative just to be there and to to be racing to to do what it was that we loved doing and we'd worked so hard towards. Um, and to get to to do it on the stage, we we couldn't have our family and friends there, who which had been planned and had been so part of it. So we kind of, yeah, you, you go into with that a slightly lesser expectation, perhaps some extent, some extent of the experience, but um, just as high for the results. And uh, yeah, to get away from from that one and just to do it with the people that we set out to do it with after all those years, I think, um, yeah, just made me happy. <laughs> do, do you remember that? Dias, do you remember the medal with the the national anthem? Do you do you remember all of that? Yeah, certainly. I think I'd watched plenty of um, Olympic sports up to that point, and and understood there's one like no other with the, all the COVID protocols that you're kind of standing up there with your masks and these always fantastic looking tracksuits that never really fit properly. Um, and ours <laughs> was no exception. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking it through it before. It's like if I was ever going to get presented by, by someone, it's got to be from, from Matt and I wanted to be the same to do it for him. So as soon as it came up, I grabbed, grabbed the first one off the, the table and Matt kind of put his head down and I, I put my hand out to shake his hand to, to say well done first. And, um, and I think that was just a really special touch that we had between the two of us. It was the same handshake we, we met each other with every day of our campaign. Um, and it was a, a nice way to finish it. And yeah, it was super proud moment to, to see the flag and hear the national anthem and not many people there, but my little sister was there and I knew she had all the mobile phones hooked up to our family <laughs> and friends and girlfriends and all over the world, uh, showcasing it. So that was pretty cool. And it must've been too, to be part of history for Australia, you know, equal best gold medals ever won at an Olympics with 17. You contributed to that count but just what was it like and, and the vibe of the Australian team you know when you got to go to the closing ceremony and bump into some of the athletes who were still there obviously I mean was there a special kind of vibe around that team in Tokyo given the success so we had like a sub-site venue for us where our standing was because we're about 45 kilometers south of the main part of Tokyo um we were, the team was ecstatic because Matt Wern had also won a gold medal as as well as us but I think a, a portion of me was, was almost sad because there were so many other great athletes in our sailing team that we wanted to do well and that hadn't quite got the result which we felt that they deserved. Um, the defending silver medalist, Jason Lisa, had a really tough event and, and didn't quite get the cards to fall their way. Um, Jake Lilly, to name another one, had kind of overcome some huge uh, physical challenges to get just to the games and he was super close. Um, one of my sisters, Jamie, was there and I knew that 
they weren't far off just a little bit more time in the boat together in that new partnership and they would have been out there as well. So I think it was almost a bit um, sad from my side in that, that team environment. Once we did get to Tokyo and, and started to understand, like you said, about the 17 gold medals and being a successful team and, and hearing the stories of the, the volleyballers and the fighters and, and all the things that they, these other teams had gone through. I think that's where you really relates back to, to being part of this bigger, broader Aussie sports team and uh, yeah, hugely proud to, to be part of it and awesome to see them get a great result. But I really hope that it's going to be beaten in all the Olympics to come. Well, I mean, Brisbane, 10 years, it's going to happen there at least if it doesn't happen uh, beforehand in <laughs> Paris and, and LA because we remember Sydney, how, how great that was. So, you know, no, yeah. no pressure on, on Brisbane, which I mean, just on with Jamie, your sister being there, I mean, I can imagine your parents absolutely love that. Uh, but, like, it's is that, given the, the lack of spectators, the lack of family, was it nice to have at least Jamie there that you can share that experience with and, and I guess, probably feel a bit nervous for her competing, but at least be able to have, you know, one family member there to celebrate your gold medal with? No, totally. She was the first person to beat me on the ramp um, when we came in. And, uh, yeah, it's hard to say, but she probably knew more than anyone else um, what it, what it meant and, and how hard that last 18 months had been uh, when COVID kind of first popped up in, in March of 2020, we both ended up back in uh, our parents' uh, holiday house trying to avoid passing. We just returned from Europe. So we were COVID risk people. So we were kind of isolated together and kind of what's next kind of moments uh, looking at each other saying, like, should we be looking for a, a new career or do you think this is going to work out? And um kind of a lot of the motivation to each other to keep putting in those hard yards during that time to go to the gym and eat well. And, and uh, I think, yeah, to see her at the finish and, and know that she was, she's quite tech savvy. She was doing a great job just to share with, with the girlfriends and boyfriends and family around the world was, was super special because it meant that I could just enjoy that moment for what it was and, and didn't feel any pressure to have to grab my phone to call anyone. I knew that she was looking after me once again. <laughs> What's it like in terms of two? Cause I mean, we're having a lot of winter athletes on, we've spoken a lot to them recently about how, you know, for the majority of winter athletes, the only time Australia in terms of like the media and everything focuses on them is during an Olympics. And I can imagine it's kind of a bit similar for the sailing team. You know, it's, it's not swimming, it's not basketball. It's not sort of something that we're focusing a lot. So how do you find then, you know, channel seven, constantly wanting to be on you all at that point. And I'm sure you've got radio stations and newspapers back in Australia wanting to interview you. And Matt, like, is that something that you enjoy or is it kind of something like, oh, fuck the goddamn media here, you know, why, why aren't you following us all the other years? You know, like, how do you find all of that kind of stuff that comes with winning a gold medal? Yeah, I don't have as many Instagram followers as, as many of the other athletes from the team. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think it probably come, reflects back a little bit to, to why you do it, uh, not say the others aren't in it for the the same reason but for me it's always just been a sport that i associate with enjoyment because of that early age and a passion to improve myself and um it's probably was a great tool which i could have promoted myself better to lead into future opportunities but um yeah i think the the media situation at the olympics is, is just totally unique for us then in many respects and something you actually end up enjoying um for sure, the day-to-day -day when you have to go to the mix zone and you had a bit of a tough day, it's usually the, the crew, myself, who gets the tough questions when we've had a bad day and they seem to go to the skipper a lot on the days we've had a good day. So um, yeah, it's a bit of a trend that seems to emerge. But, uh, no, you you learn to try to 
control and understand a bit more what what has motivated or, or what has gone well or gone poorly in those different days. And I guess I try to reflect on it as a, a learning experience into each of the next ones. Um, but for me, yeah, ultimately I'm not, not afraid of the media. I'm happy to, to stand out there and try and look pretty. Um, <laughs> let Matt answer all the questions. Um, but no, a great opportunity to showcase the sport. And I think that for me, that's something that I've always tried to carry forward is any chance that I can share my my stories or show my medal to someone that might motivate them into a career in sport I'm, I'm always more than happy to do so because I think I just feel so hugely fortunate with the path that my life has taken and, and I hope that um, some others get to, to do likewise. You mentioned where the silver medal is where's the gold medal what, what have you what have you done with it is it something that you just keep carrying around with you or is it just tucked away safely that you look at you know quietly you know just before you go to sleep every night? Uh, <laughs> no, so I'm, I'm still based in Europe at the moment. I'm based in Switzerland with my girlfriend over here. So I haven't had the chance to go back to Australia. So I do think that mum will probably end up with the gold medal, but, um, for now it hasn't touched Australian shores. So uh, it lives in a sock, uh, inside a random cupboard actually at the moment. <laughs> I love hearing when they just live in a sock. I just, it's just, it's the Olympic medals home is the sock. That's all I can say I based think- on these interviews. <laughs> I think this the stock of this one is actually clean, whereas or ah. was clean when I put it on. Whereas the one from the Rio medal, I actually can't guarantee it was a new sock when I put the medal in it. So um, yeah, think, you didn't care about that one. Things have improved over the last five years, <laughs> not, not which, as much. The one thing uh, I also love seeing with the medals, which I think, I mean, since social media, it's become much more prevalent, and some of the guests on the show too, is is like the box you get it in. It's not not just obviously you know put around your neck. That's it. But you get like a very well presented box, and I know with like. Like the Beijing athletes, they got like a, a pin, I think, with it too. So I don't know. I'm guessing maybe you got a special pin as well. So like it's all the presentation that comes around, not just a medal, but everything that you get with the medal too. Yes, yeah, certainly. And the Tokyo one was was much higher quality. So the, the Rio ones, I'm not sure if other people have touched on this, but the, um, the the history of the medals is that usually they're sourced from the medal, uh, the the natural resources of that location. So um, in Rio, they're all silver. Uh, and for all the medals were silver with the with the various coatings. Unfortunately, they were pretty terrible quality because a year after I pulled mine, or my mum pulled it out, and mine had rusted and corroded and wow. all tattered, and uh, they offered replacements for those medals. So I think that says a little bit about the whole Rio experience, and <laughs> it's very fitting because a day out from the Olympic Games in Rio, they're still building the boat ramp to put our boats <laughs> into the water. So we should have known better. But um, The no, green the diving Tokyo pool is were, stuck in our head forever from those games. So Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it would never disappear that one. Whereas, um, no, Tokyo, it was an amazing Olympics. I, I'm sorry for the, the people that they couldn't have their normal Olympics because they're just such a friendly culture that we're always trying to make everyone um, yeah, feel comfortable and to really enjoy the environment there. And, and I'm so grateful that we actually traveled to Japan so many times in the years before to experience that. For those that just went to the Olympics, I, I, um, I really hope that they will find the opportunity to go back again and, and enjoy it there. But uh, no, Tokyo is always top quality everything. I think that's recycled computers and iPhones that they use for the medals this time around. They did a great job to make sure that it was the biggest medal that they've ever produced. Um, and yeah, everything, the little boxes and stuff, are a little pretty impressive handmade craftsmanship to, to go with it. 
It's it's a nice looking medal. I, I we we did a ranking the medals episode. No, from memory, it came top ten. I think if I'm I'm not mistaken. So um yeah no, nice uh definitely a nice looking medal. Before we get to sort of our closing questions, Will, I mean, we've touched on kind of you know potential next Olympics and things like that. But going back to sort of what you're talking about, the the type of racing you may be looking at getting to sailing is something like a Sydney to Hobart and America's Cup, something like that. In your future, would that be something you would like to have a go at one day? Yeah, I've done done the Sydney to Hobart. Um, I was the youngest competitor back in 2006, which was a fantastic opportunity. As I've said, my birthday's just a couple of days before Hobart. Uh, before Christmas. So potentially I was just a, a media ploy to get me on the boat, but I, I took it <laughs> with both hands and, and ran with it. And it was a great experience. The America's cup and like these Saudi peace circuit and things that are developing around the world. I'd love to get into, but the unique thing about our sport is just the people you meet and that could be in any environment on, on any type of boat. So um, I certainly just want to kind of keep jumping at any opportunity that comes my way, but probably the one thing that from my Olympic campaign, that's kind of, carried through it was just my love for all types of endurance sports and, and any sporting opportunity. And I think, yeah, for me, that's, it's just about finding whatever that next Ironman could be or the next adventure race to challenge myself might be to, to keep trying to be, be better than yesterday for, for lack of a better term, but um, more just for the experience to be a bit of fun and, and see how I perform. I, I've got to ask, given that I am a proud Hobartian, uh, what was your experience like when you when you landed in uh, my great city? Uh, did you stay there for like the taste, the New Year's, all the kind of fun stuff that's happening around there at uh, that part of the year? So my first Hobart was pretty brutal. We actually, the only time we ever used the front sail, the, the coloured one, the spinnaker, the um, downwind sail was just off the start line. So we hit our top speed within the first four minutes of the race. Wow turned right at the heads into a, a lovely upwind storm and it was three days 19 hours of upwind sailing all the way to tasmania so wow <laughs> by the time i got there i was a, a broken person um and <laughs> usually happens when you get to hobart <laughs> exactly running late for my flight to get to my next event which um yeah so i i know i have to do another hobart i've had two more times for one was cancelled to the to, to, to COVID another time due to boat breakages, which I, I didn't end up attending, but um, I'm sure there'll be another race in the cards to come, but uh, Tassie is a, is a great city. I've been in plenty of times outside of the Hobart time and, and never regretted it. Good to know. That's what that's what we uh, we like to hear when it comes to that uh, that side of things there as well. Um, and, and any thoughts to get into like maybe some some acting for Pirates of the Caribbean now that we brought that up before? I mean, they could probably use you for like a stunt double or something. Johnny Depp, you know, he's looking a bit rough at the moment. So, I mean, he might need a couple of uh, stunt doubles in the next one. <laughs> I heard they were going to pay him something like £17 million for his bit. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to probably do it a little bit cheaper than him. So, yeah. if, I'm, if they're listening, feel free to reach out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just make sure he doesn't bring any dogs and don't poop in his bed. And I think uh, everything will be uh, probably... <laughs> probably my best. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, probably. I mean, you know, you just see Johnny Depp, I'm going to poo in your bed, mate. Um, why not uh, kind of go on that way? Um, as I said, we like to close out our uh, chats with some uh, get-to-know-yourself questions. As always, these are based on a Team Canada questionnaire they gave their athletes uh, prior to both Rio and Pyeongchang. Now, there is, of course, and we always say this, a drawing element if you if you're feeling up to it will and you want to draw you can do some homework send it in and we'll put it up on our social media we've had a couple of athletes do it in the past so uh don't know if we've had summer athlete do it i feel it's only been winter athletes who have done it so um just putting some pressure on you there will if you 
Just they must the have more indoor time, I guess. <laughs> maybe, maybe with that one. But um, there's no right or wrong answer, so you can't fail this, hopefully. If you do, then you're doing something wrong, but uh, we'll try that. Uh, your favourite all-time Olympic moment is, and you can answer your own gold medal win if you really want to. Um, this is my earliest memory is probably Kieran Perkins in uh, winning from, from lane eight. Yep. Perfect. Love that. Um, yeah, I that's one of my I – rem- I do remember bits of Barcelona, but I, I definitely – Atlanta was the first one I really paid attention to, and I remember that one. That's an yeah. iconic that moment. Cool. Most Australians yeah. will remember that one. <laughs> um, as a kid, your favourite sports team was? Uh, the Wallabies. I had no option. Dad made me watch every game. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to, to be, be Matt there. Burke. <laughs> yeah, and is it still – do you follow them closely still to this day? Uh, the lack of performance over some years has <laughs> left me kind of wondering, but um, I do do my best. And, and whenever I'm with that, I've obviously watched all the games with him as well. Is it a case? Because obviously I'm from an, a, you know, an Australian football state, so therefore you know we've got one code that we can focus on. But if you're sort of into union, you're into the Wallabies and that, do you just don't associate with the NRL or can you sort of keep an eye on it? Like, is it sort of a bit fractured there where, you know, oh, no, that's NRL. That's not real rugby. I'm not going to watch that. No. So when we moved to Newcastle, um, they didn't have a union team at the time. So dad did give me permission to go play NRL instead. So I think it's allowed uh, in our <laughs> household, but um, <laughs> any, any game with, with a big team running around the field, dad seems to be a bit of a fan of, but um, no, as I touched on, I just, I admire the way that some of those big, big teams can work together and be united in the goal, and um, I think it's pretty cool. You could have, if you had followed that path, I mean, you still could have been an Olympian now with Rugby Sevens, of course, being a, an Olympic sport. So, I mean, it still could have happened. You never know. My rugby skills were better than my cricket skills, but um, <laughs> I was still fortunate that I found sailing. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, if you could be any superhero, who would you be? Probably Maverick from Top Gun. He's a superhero, hey, isn't he? That, that counts. <laughs> Are you excited for Top Gun 2? Uh, always, yep. Always. I've been talking about it for years. It feels like I, I almost don't think it's really going to happen. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> as as a as a James Bond fan, trust me, I feel that pain of the amount of times that No Time That I got delayed. It was kind of like, okay, are we ever going to see this film, and eventually we we did get to see it. Uh, your favorite music artists are? That's a tough one because honestly, I kind of love any any music, but I have seen Coldplay probably more than any other band live, and um, their their shows are always amazing. So uh, I guess I'll put them at the top of the list. Can you actually, like, obviously when you're on the boat, I'm sure you're, you're talking, you're doing that. But, like, say, like, last day in Tokyo, when, again, you you know you just have to show up basically, but you still do what you do. Could you have just, like, I don't know, put a couple of AirPods in or put a speaker on, cracked open the champagne, just be like, fuck it, we've got the gold, like, crank out the cold play. Like, could you have done that? I think we should have, had like, a, a battle hymn, for like, as you go out, like they do in the America's Cup back in the day, when they use men at work. I think if we'd had a bit more, um, yeah, organisation from our half, maybe we could have popped out something nice and loud. Could have worked, yeah. <laughs> that would have worked. Again, Pirates of the Caribbean, it's all, you're always allowed to use it. Just, yeah, maybe just that was it. Take it, take it that way. If you could eat next one time. food next time, exactly, Paris. Um, if you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think I have to say tiramisu. Um, Ooh, yes. Always been a favourite, and it was just one of those ones that I had to neglect more times than I wanted through these last years. 
yeah, make me feel heinously sick, but I would be more than happy to take that on as long as I could have it every time. <laughs> I, I hope like Matt didn't like start just eating it in front of you. I'm like, mm, look at this tiramisu wheel that I'm eating. Like, you know, I, you have to lose more weight while I'm putting it on. <laughs> completely rubbing it in your face uh your favorite place to compete is another tough one i'd love to say home um my family live on the waters of lake macquarie which i just i do think is an amazing place but having said all that i rarely compete there so um to come across to europe and to compete in some of these mediterranean venues uh they're they're probably the special ones to to be on the, the clear blue waters and, and a bit of sunshine and, and all the rest of it is it's pretty special I can imagine. Uh, the, the picture element, if you want to draw a picture of yourself, that's the first one. So, you know, you can feel free to – stick figures are acceptable. We'll say that. It will um, be a stick figure. I hope that's good. acceptable. That's I could do a if you need. Yeah, oh, well, why not? We're just, to, just to make sure it's you and just not like, you know, some weird little stick figure. Uh, what is one thing that you have always wanted to do? To fly a plane. Fly a plane. Nice. Or be able yes. to fly that's, you, that's less realistic, probably the second. <laughs> you never know; it, it it could happen one day. Is could you take any skills from sailing and put it into piloting a plane? Uh, certainly, there's a lot of the same elements, and I've been really fortunate to kind of um, pilot a few few small planes for, uh, alongside other people. But when you watch those fighter jets kind of zooming through the sky, there must be just such a surreal feeling uh, that I think maybe it comes from watching Top Gun. A Maybe. thousand times too many times, but um, yeah, that's definitely up there as a, a life experience I'd like to tick off. I think if there's anything you can get for free with your gold medal, maybe try and get yourself to like the premiere of Top Gun 2, meet up with Tom Cruise. He's a bit of an adrenaline junkie as we know and be like, hey, Tom, take me up in an F-18 or something like that and just, uh, you know, that bucket list galore going on there, right? I'll try and trade him that large copy that I hope to get when yeah. I get back to Australia one day. <laughs> I'm sure he, I don't know if he's been to Australia in a while. I mean, how long has he and Nicole been apart? So, um, you know, he's probably due to get back to Australia soon, old Tom. So, um, probably MI2, wasn't it? Little yeah, Garden you're right. Yeah, that was like 2000, wasn't it? Like so Bruce. 20 odd years. So, gosh. Mm-hmm. Wow, that remember that movie? Um, your favorite. This is obviously asked to a winter athlete, so I'm going to switch this around. The question is my favorite thing to do in the summer. So I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite thing to do in the winter? Probably just like what all the um the the winter athletes obviously said sailing, uh, their summer sport. And for me, I'm going to say skiing. Um, skiing I absolutely yeah. love it, and been really fortunate this last couple of months to be over here in Europe and. Uh, yeah, finally enjoying, allowed to not be worried about injuring myself quite as much as I always feared before. Perfect. Uh, your favorite movie, well, I think I know your favorite movie. Do I even need to ask you what your favorite movie is? <laughs> tough guess, but you probably get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it something with planes maybe? Not sure. Um, possibly. Do you just do you just have like Highway to the yeah. Danger Zone always just going over the speaker and take my breath away? Like is it the soundtrack always pumping as well? See, that's... That's the entrance song we should have played in Tokyo. I've had a shocker there. Shouldn't, didn't yeah. even met at work. So highway to the danger zone. Highway um, to the danger zone. You probably know my password to all my things now. Oh, shit. Well, there you go, everyone. So it's Will Ryan at goldmedalist.com. Password being highway to the danger zone. Sweet. Your favorite place to visit in Australia is? Again, it's home. I've been spoiled to have an amazing life of travel, but you definitely miss uh, to get back home. Um, so back in Core Point, the 
that's that's kind of where I really found the sailing and, and got on my good friends group there and the activities I love to do. But having said that, like I think every time we find a Sydney, it's just the most surreal looking city when you find from from up top and all the waters there. And I think we get extremely lucky to live in Australia because there's, there's not many bad places to go. It's uh, well, I don't know if you've been to Launceston, but we won't start that up. Um, it's um, <laughs> it, yeah, you're right. Like when it like because the way the plane flies into the city, like you've always got that like gorgeous view, don't you? Of just you know you're really up close to the city, so it's um it is sort of one of the more unique sort of flight paths. Um, when was the last time you were back in Australia? You said you haven't been back since Tokyo, but I mean, when was like how long has it been actually since you've been to Australia? Yeah, so we had th- I think three and a half weeks. Oh, sorry, five and a half weeks at home in late May, early June, I spent two of those weeks in lovely hotel quarantine in Sydney. Um, (laughs) and then about four of those days back actually at home before flying out again. So it's been quite some time to really got to relax, but, uh, yeah. So I think early June, um, we, we headed off into over to Tokyo. Wow. And then are there plans? Like, are you, are you looking at going back at some point this year or it's kind of one of these moments where you're like, you don't actually know when you're going to be back. No, absolutely love to. Um, at the end of last year, the tickets were kind of in that 10,000 euro price range one way, uh, which was just a little bit more. I couldn't quite trade the coffee for couldn't it. Couldn't quite. So. Yeah. Gold medal uh, didn't quite get you that type no, of money. <laughs> um, but no, being Europe-based and, and taking up some new work opportunities that kind of presented themselves over here um, and kind of returning the favour to, to my girlfriend to base with her in her hometown after all her years of, traveling alongside me on, on the road show. She's, she's a sailor as well. So she knows the drill and, and um, it was kind of cool. We could do that journey together, but now it's about seeing what growing up life's a bit more about and um, yeah, buying your own bed and, and lounge and all those big decisions you have to make. Um, <laughs> but no, I've got, I'd absolutely love to get back to Australia and yeah, for sure to bring the the medal back home and, and to see my grandfather for, for one would be top of the list. Um, but just to share it with all those people that played uh, such a big part in that journey and, and certainly a few more beers to be, to be shared with Matt and, and the rest of the team at some stage in the future too. I love that, that, you know, you're an adult when you've got to buy a bed, that's basically yeah. it. Right? <laughs> No more racing car beds. Uh, like, ah, oh, shit, can't have them anymore. No bunks anymore. We get a double. Oh, really? Yeah, like, I have to share. What? Yeah, I have to share. What's, what's going on there? Uh, your favourite cartoon to watch growing up was? Ferryboat Fred, which I don't oh, know if it really exists. I remember but, uh, that show. Yeah, my parents must hate the soundtrack from that thing. But it was a toss-up between that and, and Thomas the Tank Engine. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that's, a, that's I've not heard that, that name in a long time. Ferryboat Fred. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. I don't even know how the song would go, but maybe we need to find it just to really refresh my memory. So there you go. Um, speaking of songs back on the music page, I might know the answer to this. Uh, if you had to do karaoke, what would you sing? Oh, at a young age, I decided to sing like a Cat Stevens song so you can, can probably almost put that down to parental abuse. You can hear it. No one used to listen to it at home a lot on records. Um, <laughs> but That's, probably go for the men at work one because I think you can yell that one as loud as you want. It still sounds okay. <laughs> it's, I mean, uh, there's a nice balance there, like singing a bit of like Wild World versus some, you know, men at work or, yeah, father and son or something like that. Like um, kind of works, you know. Exactly. Like John Farnham's always a good one when you go to karaoke these days. Well, there's plenty of yelling of those ones. 
Exactly. You've got to bring a bit of the Fonzie going, Fonzie or Barnsie, right? No one does it sober, do they? It's expected no. that you've had a few. Does anyone do karaoke sober? Like, uh, I, I think people would be lying if they, they said they would. In, um, in Japan, more people do it than you'd expect. True. That is that is very, very true. Um, when I was yeah. back in Hobart, they, they've got karaoke bars in Hobart. Now, you know it's taking off when Hobart's got karaoke bars. So, like, you know, that's really taking off. If you could be an Olympian in any other sport besides your own, what would it be? Well, branching into this winter sport kind of stuff, I I thought maybe I had the potential to do one of these ski sports, but um, no, I always had a, a notion that it's sometimes better to be lucky than good in the in the sailing. But I think in those snow sports, you actually do need to be good. Um, but <laughs> I'd love to be a, an I a, a triathlete as well. I just I admire those athletes immensely for the way that they can compete and push themselves to the absolute limit of their abilities and. And I think that's the same same reason a lot of those winter sports, those Nordic biathlons and stuff like that, you just, you see them just ruin. And uh, yeah, that's a mental strength that uh, is not easy to develop. And I admire it a lot. I'm I'm a massive fan of any multiple discipline sports. You know, like uh, yeah, triathlon's great. I love the modern pentathlon. You know, Nordic combined, but like anything. Like it's just just it's hard enough doing one sport, let alone like hey, let's combine a couple and do it all together. Like I think we we talked that I think in our sailing commentary, we're gonna have like fencing on the sail, like to have some jewels going on, like uh, out there, real pirates of the Caribbean style. So you could have like. I mean, modern pentathlon are looking for a fifth dil- discipline now that they're getting rid of the horse riding. So you could probably get sailing involved and do the fencing and the sailing at the same time. There you go. I think they should do that. Give us a chance of, a, of another medal opportunity like they do for Michael Phelps and all the other swimmers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, he's got like 100 gold. 22 medals. But um, yeah. you know how many years it would take us to have a crack at 22 yeah. medals in sailing? <laughs> how old did you say you were when you did the Sydney to Hobart? You need to go back to like Athens or something like that to get started to have a remote chance of, of doing that. So, I mean, you're doing like, what, yeah. 10 races, did you say? I think you should get a medal for every race. Uh, during it, there you go. Yeah, then you can be I'll, like Michael Phelps. I'll write a strongly worded letter, see if I'll yeah. hand them out. Afterwards. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. You know, so I, I think this is the IOC's problem. It's all like, oh, we've only got like 300 medals we can give out. Oh, fuck it. Just make more. Like, I mean, come on. They recycled <laughs> iPhones. There should have been yeah. plenty. Oh, well. Exactly. <laughs> come on. I mean, we, we want to see the medal tally. It's like, you know, China, 412 gold medals, 307 silver, and 812 bronze. Like, that's a fair medal tally. Why not? You know, kind of. Much better. Helps them out, helps them out. Uh, Will, before we let you go, uh, we, we touched on before a little bit about uh, Instagram, social media, anywhere people can follow you, stay up to date with uh, what you got coming out. TikTok, are you on TikTok yet? I am on TikTok. Um, I don't have my own account, but I've seen myself in plenty of videos. Uh, no, I use Instagram, uh, Will Ryan 100 That's kind of more my, my sporting profile that I occasionally managed to, to do things too, but I am always open to people that questions and, and things like that. Uh, I love to share as much as I can about my Olympic experience and, and pathways and opportunities into it for, for anyone who wants to kind of have that opportunity. Um, so please reach out. Uh, not the best updating photos, but it's on my very important list of, of things to in the future. <laughs> well, we'll keep an eye on that. And I, I, honest, I honestly hope that the first thing you post on it when you get back to Australia one day is this large coffee and which wherever yeah. you got that medium coffee, if they're listening, like give them a plug with a, like a local cafe or something like that. Like where did you get this? And I, I really hope they've got that large coffee ready for you. No, well, if Jack's listening, I'm definitely coming to, to my local coffee shop back at, back at home in Toronto at Cleaver. And uh, uh, yeah, 
make it an extra large if that's right. Extra large, yes. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've been home. <laughs> it's been a long time. You deserve it. You deserve it. Will, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate, for joining us here on Off the Podium. Best of luck with everything moving forward. And I'm sure we'll uh, get you back on uh, post-Paris uh, once you've got that extra gold and, you, and you're joining Matt as the uh, greatest Olympic sailor from Australia in, in the history of the Olympics. Uh, thanks very much, Ben, and uh, thank you. And um, yeah, keep keep the good times coming. It's great listening to you and, and all the amazing athletes you get to get the chance to talk to. I'm very jealous, but I'm um, no, really enjoy listening. So thanks for having me. And a massive thanks to Will. Such a fun, entertaining chat there. And as I said at the top of this interview. Seriously, how is this not more entertaining for us watching it at home? Like how he describes it, everything that's going out there on that boat, it's just insane. And to actually think that if, say, Colin and I were in a boat and I ate a cheeseburger and he has to basically get in the treadmill and lose that cheeseburger for me. Sounds pretty sweet if, if you're asking me in terms of uh, I'm going to be the selfish git today and I'm going to eat more food, you have to lose more weight. So if only life could be like that more so in other ways. But uh, great to chat to Will there, fantastic interview. And if you want to see the video version of that too, remember to go to YouTube and hit us up on there to see the video version. So much coming your way very soon. We're very close to the Commonwealth Games as well, and we're going to be doing a bit more coverage of the Commonwealth Games this time around. Very excited for that. So stay tuned for Birmingham 2022 coverage. In the meantime, if you like what we're doing here and off the podium, remember to follow us on social media, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. You can find us on there. And, of course, subscribe to the show where all good podcasts are available. Search for Off the Podium, mash that subscribe button, and if you do like like the show leave us some feedback we'd love to hear what you think and by all means send us a message on social media if you want to request a guest come up with an idea for a future episode let us know we'd love to hear what your thoughts are and what you would like us to chat about on the show stay tuned for plenty more exciting stuff happening here on off the podium thanks again to will as always shout out to our friends jason momoa bob sled and pole vault and until we next speak again my name is ben and remember to go left Let me